Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Though she had hardly understood a word of what was being said, my master's eldest daughter had listened attentively while her mother and cousin Yuki launched out upon their earnest discussion of the question of marriage. But suddenly, out of the blue, the little girl opened her mouth. I, she announced, would also like to get married. Though Yuki is herself so brimming with youthful ardor that she could well be expected to sympathize with Tonko's feelings, she was in fact struck dumb by such reckless lust. Mrs. Sneeze, however, took it all in her stride, and smiling at her daughter, simply asked, To whom? Well, shall I tell you? I want to marry Tokyo Shokonsha, but I don't like crossing Suido Bridge, so I'm wondering what to do. Both Mrs. Sneeze and Yuki were distinctly taken aback by this unexpected declaration of an ambition to marry the shrine dedicated to the departed spirits of those who'd fallen in war for the sake of the fatherland. Words failed them, and all they could do was shake with laughter. They were still laughing when the second daughter said to her eldest sister, So you'd like to marry Tokyo Shokensha? Well, so would I. I'd love it. Let's both do just that. Come on. No? All right, then, if you won't join me, I'll take a rickshaw and go get married by myself. Babu Go, too, piped the smallest of my master's daughters. Indeed, such a triple marrying off would suit him very well. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. And what I've just read to you is a small selection from the novel I Am a Cat by Natsume Soseki. Now, this forms the beginning of the second chapter of the book that I'd like to share with you today. And this is Akiko Takanaka's new book, Yasukuni Shrine, History, Memory, and Japan's Unending Postwar. This came out in 2015 with the University of Hawaii Press. Now, you might be wondering, um, as indeed I was when I read this, um, and um, and as Akiko explains very beautifully at the beginning of this chapter, what on earth is going on when a little girl says, and actually when multiple girls say, I want to marry a shrine um, dedicated to memorializing war dead. Like, what the heck is going on there? Well, you'll find out. Um, It's a really interesting story, and you'll find out when you read chapter two. But in the meantime... What I'd like to share with you um, is an interview about the book that this is part of. So this is a book that looks at um, a number of very particular issues surrounding the case of a very particular site. This is Yasukuni Shrine, but it uses this case to open up some issues of much broader relevance to the way we understand the connection between um, trauma and memory, the connection between war, nationhood, and religion, Um, and lots and lots of other things. The nature of grief, um, what it means to grieve publicly, who has ownership of grief of a particular um, sort of family member, whether the family has rights over ownership of that grief or not. Um, And there's lots and lots of other issues that come up in this book. Now, what Akiko does is she uses a study of Yasukuni Shrine as a belief, as a site, 
and as an issue to open up these larger questions and these larger concepts. And in the course of this, what she also does is show the real importance of understanding contemporary political debates about Yasukuni's shrine by informing ourselves about the history of how um, this particular site, which is super important and super famous, became what it is today and became embroiled in the kinds of conversations and became understood in the way that it is today, which is actually quite different, as you'll see um, from the conversation and from the book, from how it was founded um, and experienced uh, as well by early experiencers of the shrine. So with that, the siren in the background has ended, so I think that's my cue to let you get on with it. And so I'll just say um, this really was a pleasure, and thank you so much for joining us today, for listening, and for your support of the channel. Hope you enjoy. I'm here today with Akiko Takanaka to talk about her new book, Yasukuni Shrine, History, Memory, and Japan's Unending Post-War. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, Akiko, and thanks so much for making the time to talk with me about a timely and important and really, really interesting book about a really important idea and issue and site and belief, as we'll talk about, in Japan and beyond. So welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. And thank you so much for having me. Of course. So, Akiko, let's start with the traditional question. How did you come to work on Japan? And specifically, what brought you to a kind of academic writerly interest in working on Japan as a scholarly topic? Right. Um, it was a long path. Um, my undergraduate degree is in engineering from the Tokyo Institute of Technology, where I studied architectural design. But this decision to do architectural design wasn't really, a, in retrospect, not a very well thought out one. Um, one of the reasons was because I spent um, some years of my childhood in the United States, specifically grades four through ten, which meant that I missed a whole lot of humanities education in Japan including, you know, language, literature, history, and so on and so forth. And so when I returned to, this, to, to Japan at grade 11, and I was told, you know, you have to choose between arts and humanities or science and engineering right now, I just went ahead and chose science and engineering because I just had no, no background in humanities. And so, you know, I decided to pursue architecture, worked in the field for several years, but I was not fit for design. Perhaps I was not very good at designing. Um, so I decided to go back to graduate school and I decided to do a master's degree at MIT because they had a program in architectural history and theory. And initially I was thinking, well, I'll just get a master's degree in the States, go back to Japan and start writing stuff. Mm -hmm. But when I was looking into topics for my master's thesis, I became very interested in um, representations of national identity in architecture. Japan, I chose partly because at that point, I was very overwhelmed in graduate school. And, you know, my English was rusty after spending so many years in Japan. And I decided, well, you know, I just want an easy language to do archival <laughs> research in. And so I chose Japan and I was looking at Japanese pavilions at international expositions. And I just so happened to come across um, 
exhibitions in 1939 and 1940, 1939, 1940 in New York City, that was very little examined academically. But, you know, that that's sort of, you know, right before Pearl Harbor and, and it, when Japan is already engaged in warfare in Asia. And I became very interested in this, this what I, I, I called wartime national identity, or perhaps another way of putting it is wartime cultural diplomacy via architecture. And that sort of got me really interested in, 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 well, I had to study the context in order to um, analyze the architecture, which meant that more and more I was learning about Japanese history and modern Japanese history, wartime Japanese history. And so even when I was done with my, my thesis, I just wanted to keep going and learn more. And so I decided to go pursue a PhD. And another issue that I realized at this point was that as a child, I was this very strange child who was very obsessed with war stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is when I was still in Japan. So I must have been like second, third grade. And I obsessively read children's books and memoirs of little children's experiences during the Tokyo Air Race, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, things like that. I have no idea why. But I was very much obsessed with that. And so so this, this my obsession with wartime kind of came back to me again as I was doing my master's thesis. So I realized that for my PhD, too, I wanted to do something that had to do with architecture and war. As I was researching for topics for my dissertation, I realized that nobody has written anything about the relationship between architecture and the Asia-Pacific War in Japan. For example, in Nazi Germany, you know, there's all, all these, these, these um, scholarly works on Abed Speer and, and, you know, how Hitler wanted Speer to create his, his ideal city for Nazi Germany and so on and so forth, and fascist Italy as well. And I realized that nobody does that in Japan. And more that I looked into it, I started to come across passages like, well, architecture had no relationship with the war in the case of Japan because, well, very simply put, it was not possible to build anything, especially in the 1940s, and therefore um, there is no war responsibility in architecture in the case of Japan. And I started to think, well, is that really right? And I started to explore more. And so for my dissertation, I worked on the use of urban spaces for mass mobilization. Mm-hmm. And um, I was looking at spaces such as the Yasukuni Shrine, of course, the plaza in front of the Imperial Palace in Tokyo and, and spaces like that. And I was looking at how how um, certain spaces can mobilize people into, in, in, into becoming, um, how should I put it? sort of patriotic and enthusiastic supporters of the imperial Japan's imperial cause. So that's sort of how I gradually, gradually got into the topic that I wrote my book on. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's great. Um, so the book, um, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it, um, looks very carefully at one of the sites that you just mentioned as uh, being featured in your dissertation work, right? This is Yasukuni Shrine, and it looks carefully at Yasukuni Shrine as a war memorial, 
examining its role in, in the words of the book, waging war, honoring the dead, promoting peace, and building a modern national identity. So it sounds like, um, and we were talking about this a little bit before um, we started the podcast as well, the book came from a piece of the dissertation. So as a way of understanding um, that transformation, can you talk a little bit about what for you were kind of important or notable aspects of that decision-making process, um, that sort of practice of transforming one part of the dissertation work into a full um, and fully developed book manuscript. How did that work for you and what was notable about that? Right. Um, initially, to be honest, I didn't know what to do with my dissertation. I love your honesty. <laughs> I love this. This is like all of our experience, right? Like distilled into like honest statements. This is fabulous. I'm told I have no filter between I love my, this. No, I'm... I love it. I love it. Keep going. <laughs> So fortunately, I had two postdoctoral fellowships before my tenure track. And so I had a long time to think about this and ponder about what to do about my dissertation. And because I had some time, I thought, well, why don't I just leave it aside and give it some time and think about the issues of uh, war, war memory, representations of war memory in other ways. And then maybe I can come back to it maybe in a year or two or something like that. And so for a while, I started looking at war and peace museums in Japan. I traveled, which was a nice part of this project, um, throughout Japan and went to a variety of museums from Okinawa to, to Hiroshima, Nagasaki, you know, the large ones, as well as um, very small ones and private um, display rooms, which sometimes is like one room in a house. And I was interviewing curators and looking at a variety of ways that um, the Asia-Pacific War has be, is, is being represented three-dimensionally in a museum setting. And I was kind of struggling to transform that perhaps into a book proposal. And then I got stuck again. But at that point, though, when I took a step back from my supposed new project, I realized that all the issues that I was trying to talk about with this new project, I could just use Yasukuni Shrine as one big case study and develop this, what used to be kind of a longest chapter of my dissertation into a whole book. Um, and so um, one of the questionnaires that I had to write for my publishers, one of the questions was, um, so how many percentage of your book is from the dissertation? And my honest answer was 10%. I really expanded quite a bit on the dissertation, both temporarily as well as um, sort of con um, content-wise um, in order to turn it into a book. Mm -hmm. And that's funny that they asked that question, right? Because, I mean, even if the... I mean, and now I'm just going to give a little uh, idiosyncratically... Um, yeah, this is just what I'm interested in, kind of footnote, but it assumes that there's something about the content, right? That's like preserved in the transformation of form mm -hmm. from one form mm -hmm. to another. That's mm -hmm. like, you know, everybody knows that that's a, like a massive metamorphosis, even if the content right. is exactly the same, right. the book is going to be totally different right. from exactly. the dissertation. So like, how do you even answer a question like yeah, that? I know. A percentage? So I know. like, good on you for, um, for doing that. <laughs> So the the book is a really really fascinating and very focused study of this particular site 
issue and belief, and you talk about those three aspects of Yasukuni, um, but that open up much larger ways of thinking about space and memory and practice and all kinds of things um, that range, you know, potentially much, much further beyond Yasukuni itself. So I think it's really wonderful that way. So let's actually get right into it. Um, so right in the introduction, and I'll just lay this out for listeners, you identify these three components, right, of Yasukuni, belief, sight, and issue. You talk about these um, major animating concepts of memory and spatial practice, and you also raise two larger issues that the book's contents and the book's analysis speak to, and I'll just name those, um, and mm-hmm. then we'll kind of dive right in. Okay. One issue is the problem of, in the words of the book, how a nation state that was defeated in war acknowledges its military dead. And then the second big issue that um, you mentioned right at the beginning is the relationship between religion and war, uh, or rather religion and war memorialization in a secular state. And we'll talk about that throughout, but that really comes to the fore once we get to the late chapters of the book. Okay, so Yasukuni did not start out um, as a site that encouraged the kind of sort of thinking about sacrifice and thinking about death and the value of that, right? It started out as something um, quite different um, that was uh, in the kind of minds of its founders very different and also in the minds of its experiencers very different. And the first couple of chapters of the book really take us into these early stages of the shrine. Mm -hmm. Chapter one traces the origin of an important myth that developed around Yasukuni Shrine during the Asia-Pacific War. This was the myth or the idea that dying for the emperor would result in enshrinement at Yasukuni as a god. Now, this chapter is interested in the transformation of early myths into a kind of national belief. Okay, So this is a way of bringing out Yasukuni the belief, um, one of the three Uh concepts I talked about a little bit earlier. Okay, so at the time... um, when the shrine was founded, the idea of encouraging death by attaching a particular value to it was not present, right? This shrine was not used to mobilize men for a common cause. So, right. Akiko, can you tell us um, very briefly, what was this shrine initially founded for? What was its intention um, when it was founded and, and by whom it was founded? Right. Um, so chapter one, I wrote because I was curious about uh, 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 a whole bunch of uh, uh, a set of questions um, that uh, very so as we know, so many books and articles have been published on Yasukuni Shrine in Japanese, and you would think that everything has been covered already. But what I couldn't find out was where this, did this, the, the idea to collectively memorialize all that died for the nation as a way to promote nationalism, where did this idea come from? And I was especially curious because Yasukuni Shrine was established, well, it, originally it wasn't called Yasukuni Shrine, it was called Tokyo which is a shrine to invite in spirits and sort of like an informal shrine but it was created in 1869 um, Meiji Japan as sort of this you know the first unified Japan right emerges in 1868 so there's not really this concept of a nation at that time at least um, amongst the, the, the people which means that this institution wasn't going to work in the way that it worked in, say, the 1930s and 40s, um, where, you know, there was this popular understanding of the concept to die for the nation. Um, And so I was just curious about 
where this idea came from, A. And then another point that I was very curious about was where did the idea of using Shinto as a death ritual come from? Because previously, um, all the death rituals had been conducted, almost all, um, in regional areas. There were some variations, but primarily death rituals had been conducted in the Buddhist style. And so I was curious about these these points. And I started to look into this as... Um, as sort of an invented tradition, you know, the, the kind of idea that Tak Fujitani had talked about in his first book, Splendid Monarchy, inventing traditions in order to create this sense of national identity, like the national anthem or the flag or holidays and things like that. And then I realized, well, this is one example of that. So, okay, that makes sense. So the creators must have wanted this this sense of identity. Um, but where did it start? You know, did it just all of a sudden materialize in, in Tokyo? And so I wanted to look into sort of the prehistory of Yasukuni Shrine in order to figure out where this came from. And that got me into the Choshu domain, which is um, approximately where the current Yamaguchi prefecture is at the western end of um, Honshu, the, the, the biggest um, island in Japan. Um, the domain that was the primary architect of the Meiji Restoration. And even before the Restoration, I realized that, you know, Choshu domain had been going through a lot of skirmishes um, with um, other countries such as Britain um, and the United States, but but also with um, the main bakufu, which was the Tokugawa um, government, and which means that skirmishes result in deaths. And since the 1850s, I, I found that they had started to do these memorial practices on a much smaller scale. But um, um, very quickly, this turns into an annual ritual. And then very quickly, the ritual um, transforms from um, something that merely memorializes into um, a practice that is supposed to encourage kind of a, um, not a national identity, but sort of a Choshu domainal identity. And that um, in the late 1950s, there was this, this um edict within the domain to construct little shrines where these um these these rituals can take place so we see here sort of really the beginnings of of um, kind of the practice that we see in Yasukuni Shrine. So that was one thing that I was looking into. And then the other question was, so where does the Shinto um, idea come from? And I sort of traced this this um, Shinto idea from um, the national learnings that were um, very very much popularized in the Mito domain, which is very, very far away from Choshu. You know, it, it, it's a little bit to the north of current Tokyo, um, and how that idea was transported back to Choshu and gradually incorporated into the, the this, this, these death rituals in the area as well. So it, it's sort of the, the first chapter emerged from a whole bunch of questions that I started to have, you know, these, these why this, why that, and I sort of became this detective looking into, um, looking for answers to these questions. 
Great. Now, when the shrine was conceived, most Japanese didn't have much to do with the men who were memorialized there. Right. And they didn't experience the shrine um, like as a result in the way that its creators had intended. So in chapter two, you talk about all kinds of ways that um, Japanese did experience the shrine. Mm-hmm. On, and it's, it's a really fascinating um, kind of set of practices. So can you bring us into that a little bit? How did people experience the shrine in these early days? Um, and can you talk a little bit about its use as a site for popular entertainment and mm-hmm. space for novel experiences, as you put it here in this chapter? Right. So Yasukuni Shrine, it was built in the middle of Tokyo, right? Right next to, to the north of the Imperial Palace, which means that in the early years, if anyone's coming to the shrine that had nothing to do with the government or the military or the or, or the dead memorialized there, um, the people would be the, the typical, atypical visitor to the shrine would be the residents of Tokyo, um, who had nothing really to do with the, the restoration or the battles that took place as a, as a part of the Meiji Restoration. Um, there's this very interesting anecdote as a case in point where um, when one of the battles during the restoration, the Battle of Ueno took place in in the current Ueno Park area, um, the nearby residents sort of gathered around to, to watch the spectacle. It's a battle, you know, like people are going, you know, killing each other. But the local residents, because they had nothing to do with fighting. Um, and maybe I should mention this briefly, too, where, you know, until the beginning of Meiji, in the Tokugawa era, there were these these relatively strict um, social hierarchies and and engagement in war- warfare was not what a typical person did. Um, and so that was some an, an experience that was very far away from their everyday life. And so the Battle of Bueno, local residents gathered around. Um, I've heard similar stories about the Civil War as well, but in any case, they would gather around, what's the spectacle? And then there would be merchants selling like rice balls and pickled vegetables to the spectators. So it, that was sort of the relationship between an ordinary resident of Tokyo and 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 warfare. And so, you know, Yasukuni Shrine, war, war dead, that had no meaning to a typical visitor of a shrine. But instead, there were these events that were taking place at the shrine that started to attract the visitors. Um, and, 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 um, Events such as horse races mm-hmm. and circuses and fireworks and sumo restaurant and and then there were um, new institutions being built on the shrine grounds such as the Yushuka Museum, the currently very controversial military museum, um, um, and so people came for these kind of new novel experiences without really initially understanding what was going on. Now, um, the the creators of the shrine had different ideas, of course, about these events, right? And sumo restoring, for example, was... um, was often conducted as a part of um, a memorializing practice. So, you know, as they, they the, the 
the sumo wrestlers, as they pound their feet on the ground, they're sort of placating, calming the souls um, underneath. Um, it is sometimes told. Or fireworks, too, were very often used for memorial purposes. Um, horse races, apparently it was to discipline the, the or improve horsemanship of the riders. Um, Services, I have not found really any good explanation for hosting of the circuses. But um, this goes along the tradition of, you know, um, religious spaces being um, a, a site of entertainment. Um, you know, Buddhist uh, temples, for example, had this tradition all throughout the Tokugawa period, for example. And so for the visitors, it was sort of not very strange that these things were happening at the shrine. And another interesting point is that um, in the early years of the Meiji period, the government um, attempted um, quite rigorous, rigorously to modernize and civilize the capital city and its residents, right? Because they are trying to, to prove themselves to the international audience that Japan is now a modern civilized nation and therefore, you know, worth uh, worthy of an equal relationship with, say, the United States or England and so on and so forth. And so the government passed a variety of laws and regulations forbidding what they considered um, sort of Edo-style, non-civilized, uncouth behavior. Um, so some examples are like, you know, women and men bathing together or urinating in public or showing off of deformed bodies, which was a big part of, um, you know, spectacle and, 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 and sort of festival, a, a part of um, festivals and things like that. And so... These, these, these behaviors start to be banned from the rest of Tokyo. Another thing that the government banned from the, the, the re remainder of the city were vendors and street performers. Um, and so majority of traditional forms of entertainment at this point, very early Meiji, um, it, 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 it changes, shifts um, very quickly on, but these traditional forms of entertainment becomes forbidden within the city, except Yasukuni Shrine is outside the jurisdiction of the city because it's owned by the military, which means that all these people who are expelled from other parts of the city, they set up shop at the shrine, which means that Yasukuni Shrine becomes even more famous for sort of the 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 the, 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 the degree to which the these these kinds of um, entertainment is being held at the shrine. So the, these are. You know, Great. sort of kind of the reasons why it became such a popular site. Great. Thank you so much. So this is really different, right, from the um, understanding of Yasukuni Shrine as a site that some listeners and readers might come to the book. Right, right, so right. the chapter, just to kind of super briefly um, move us a little bit forward, the chapter also looks very closely at the ways that victory in wars against China and Russia, right? This was the Sino-Japanese mm -hmm. War and the Russo-Japanese War, the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, respectively, really transformed the grounds of the shrine 
design into a space for celebrating war victories. And you talk about right. this as a transformation, right, of Yasukuni, the site, um, to, to again kind of look back to these three ways of understanding Yasukuni that we talked about at the very beginning. Now, mm-hmm. there's also a chapter, and I'm going to take us very briefly through this, um, just entirely about time after this, that looks at what's happening outside of Tokyo. Mm-hmm. So chapter three looks at the popularization of beliefs associated with the shrine um, during a time when most Japanese did not visit the site, right? Late 19th, right. early 20th centuries. Right. Um, so it focuses on local victory celebrations and memorial practices, and it gives a really interesting account of the ways that um, uh, kind of local funerary practices really enmeshed Japanese people outside of Tokyo into mm-hmm. this national fabric and into a web that really included Yasukuni Shrine at its center. And you talk about the ways um, that these ideas of um, this kind of national fabric with Yasukuni um, involved in that are disseminated beyond Tokyo um, through education, through newspapers and other mass media, through local rituals, um, and through other kinds of things. We also see in this chapter, and I'm going to briefly summarize this and then and then move us on okay. a little bit, but we also talk about, or you also talk about here, um, the way that the nationalization of the Yasukuni myth can be understood by looking at two phenomena in particular. One is the establishment of a kind of parallelism between the nation state and the family and the family, Uh um, the nation state kind of becomes a family with the emperor at its head. And this starts to be a way of understanding how we get to a discourse of sacrificing one's life um, for the sake of the emperor, right? If the emperor is the kind of progenitor or patriarchal figure of a national family, that starts to make a little bit of sense. And you also talk about the mobilization of the notion of a kind of honorable spirit, um, right. to, to urge reverence for memorialization at the site. Okay, so that's a right. super quick <laughs> overview um, just because of time, but is there anything in particular in that chapter before we move to Total War um, and Chapter 4 that you think is partic- that you're particularly passionate about that you just want to mark for listeners so that they can pay special attention to it when they have a chance to read it? Right, so this honorable spirits that you mentioned at the very end, um, Eide in mm-hmm. Japanese, right, that was an invention invented word that that came to be associated with Yasukuni in the beginning of the 20th century that is um, very popularly used today. Um, And so that's another um, example of these invented traditions. But I I just wanted to quickly point out, too, that um, in order for the war dead to become this honorable spirit um, in in the process of memorialization, um, the, the spirit of the war dead is cleansed, which means that um, so, you know, spirits are cleansed at enshrinement, which means that um, whatever they did before they died, it sort of just goes away, right? And then, you know, this is a typical way that we talk about the dead, but, you know, we tend to say good things about people who died, right? But that becomes a reality. So anything that the ADA committed before dying at war sort of gets erased. And, and that has a strong implication for um, later issues of war responsibility. 
facility, right? If all the war criminals to Yasukuni are 80 and they have been cleansed of, of, of all their crimes, then, then who is responsible? So it opens up really interesting questions for um, the post-war years. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And we're going to um, actually return to that theme, right? I'm sure in the chapters mm-hmm. to come. So chapter four. So I, I want to also just mark for listeners. I'm moving through that really quickly, but not because there's not all kinds of super fascinating stuff there that we could spend another probably two hours talking about. <laughs> so, But I want to get to these ash boxes. Um, and to, um, really, I mean, just so moving and fascinating. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. Okay, so chapter four focuses on the period of total war mobilization during the Asia-Pacific War. And it does this by following a particular story. It follows the story of the death and enshrinement of one particular soldier, an army private named Kurokawa Umekichi. Okay, now it follows his death on the battlefield, his cremation, the return of his ashes in a box, um, local memorial services, and then Yasukuni enshrinement. And this is a really, really interesting way of kind of bringing us into these practices and processes and also bringing us into the real affective experience um, and element of these practices. This is not just about um, national mobilization, right? This is not just about Mm -hmm. the experience of a nation. This is also about the experiences of like a mother and a father and loved right. ones. And it's about grief. And this chapter really brings that very, very powerfully to the fore. One of the things, um, and this is very idiosyncratic, but um, I'm asking because I tend to be really interested in material culture. One of the mm-hmm. things that really struck me here um, in this journey of a man from death on the battlefield to ultimately enshrinement in Yasukuni um, um, was the the real attention you were giving to the material aspects of this year? You talk about these ash boxes, right? Kotsubako. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that relatives um, would receive that either contained the ashes of their loved ones, or if those weren't available, um, perhaps bone fragments or bone parts, and if those weren't available, they might receive a box that had a stone in it or a piece right. of paper or right. a handful of sand. Um, now, this was really moving and really striking to me, and I wanted to just ask you to talk a little bit about, for you, um, the importance of the materiality of this, right? This comes out really, really strikingly um, in this chapter. Like, can you talk a little bit about this as a kind of material experience for loved ones um, in this kind of journey of, uh, you know, of death, really? Right. So, Kotsubako, so I start by talking about Umekichi's Kotsubako, right? And Umekichi, died really early in the war in 1934. So not very many people were dying at that point and all the war dead could receive and did receive a really individualized attention and care. And I mean, I was blown away too when I realized what kind of um, rituals and and, and, um, processes that that Umekichi's ash box um, went through even before they got to, they they came home to the family, right? Because they went through multiple rituals in China, and then they um, it traveled. One officer was assigned to 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 make sure that the box traveled home safely, and you know. 
during the travel, there would be in many locations like ports and train stations, even even still in China, there would be you know a lot of receptions, almost like celebrations of local people. Um, well, in the case of China, it's, it's it's Japanese people who had relocated to northern China, but um, there's all these rituals um, uh, along the way and there is so much attention being paid to this this box which safely goes back to Umekji's family um, and I juxtaposed what I wanted to do was to juxtapose this against a later, much later experience. And I don't have an example with, you know, as much rich, detailed um, uh, uh, information as the case of Umekichi. But I had some archival sources and some military documents to allow me to kind of not as specifically, but trace as well what was going on with the war dead and what happened to their bodies, um, especially in the later years of the war, especially in the battle in the Pacific, where you know there was no way to. Um, so, in the case of Umekichi, right, he he is transported back to the base after he's killed, and he's cremated on site and goes through all these rituals. Cremation of bodies, it takes a long time and a lot of resources, which is not possible in the Pacific Islands. And so there are these truncated rituals to try to take something back home. Um, so, you know, just just a, a, a pinky or thumb or something to cremate so that just a little bit of ashes would be um remaining to be able to be transported for home or if that's not possible then maybe a, maybe a piece of hair or uh, a tooth or something like that and it seems like there was a lot of effort um, at least according to documents to bring something back home and then even with you know like a, a, sand, a handful of sand or a piece of rock a lot of the times there were explanations like you know it was impossible to retrieve the bodies and therefore we decided that all the spirits had descended onto this beach and therefore uh, this piece of a handful of sand would have the spirits of your son and and things like that but yeah that's amazing to me and and um i'm sorry go on i i I, yeah go on sorry um yeah i was just very fascinated by this too but then you know even that's not possible right when like boat full of, of men sink with the boat, for example. Um, there's nothing remaining. But there was always this sort of this pretense to bring something back home. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, you know, at the very end of the war and um, immediately after the war, many families received these boxes, which were empty. And many would just sort of treat it as if it contained real ashes, other families would be really angry and 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 um, just dispose of the box. Um, but in a way, the families who did go through the process of treating these empty boxes as if they contained the ashes, they sort of wanted to believe that the boxes contained the ashes. To, and it, it, it kind of gave them a sense of closure, mm-hmm. I think. Um, which is the positive way of looking at it, and then, but a more skeptical way of looking at this is that the military sort of 
you know, took away from the families any chance to um, give proper burial, to give proper ritual to their loved ones. And they sort of robbed the families the opportunities for real closure by giving them these boxes and pretending that everything is fine, where, you know, even today they're so many thousands of, of bones and, and, you know, bones and body pieces still left in, on the Pacific Islands that people are still trying to look for. So, you know, there, there's this like positive way of looking at this and a negative way of looking at this. But in a way, it was it's, it, it's, it's also kind of a clever way to make this impression, present this impression that all the war dead is being taken care of mm-hmm. by the military and the state. And the, the chapter goes on from these ash boxes um, to look also at the process of enshrinement at Yasukuni, um, including the shokon ritual, where like thousands of spirits are enshrined in Yasukuni as a god, right. um, and including you know another way that bodies are traveling um, as a result of this war death, um, and that's the bodies of bereaved families who are traveling to Tokyo, right, and traveling mm-hmm. to the shrine, mm-hmm. and you talk about about the ways um, that this gets uh, kind of embedded within a larger set of experiences in Tokyo for these families and the way that, um, just to kind of um, touch on what you were just saying, right, the grief that was associated with a family member's death was institutionalized mm-hmm. as a national event, was kind of controlled in a way in participants, right. right? I mean, they're expected or they're kind of institutionally pressured to perform a particular kind of a emotional response to war death in particular ways, right? Right. And this is, I think, a really powerful part of the story. And this chapter also takes us into the importance of kind of dissenting voices and like how as a historian you access that or not, right, with this Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. structure. So this is, um, so we're going to move on, but is there anything about, um, before we move on to the next chapter and legal cases, right, around this, is there anything in particular about that institutionalization of grief um, that you want us to pay special attention to or that you'd like listeners to pay special attention to when they get to that chapter that you think is, like, particularly important or exciting? Right. So a big part of this institutionalization of grief is this this act of self-censorship mm-hmm. that um, many of the bereaved families and the media both are practicing. Um, and um, so I, I learned quite a bit from Jonathan Abel, who I think oh, yeah, you've yeah. interviewed before, yeah, too. Yeah, great. He's, His book is great. Right. And then, you know, so his his books talks about how the the goal of censorship in wartime Japan wasn't really to censor and keep censoring, but rather was to cultivate an internal censor in all imperial subjects, right? So that censorship would no longer be required. And so when I was working on this wartime period and, and looking at the special practices within the shrine, one thing that I really came away with was that it, what Yasukuni was doing was to provide the space um, for um, organized activities, right, where people are kind of looking at each other and there's this kind of a mutual surveillance, right? Other people are looking at me and therefore I need to behave appropriately. And and, and that that 
that makes one that makes its participants self-censure oneself so that one is behaving appropriately. And then that gets represented and reported in media and other sort of tangible forms that, that we still have access to today. So what we end up seeing is this result of censorship. And, you know, I think intellectually, we know that this, you know, everything that we see from the wartime period is a result of censorship. But at the same time, it's hard for us to really understand that. I mean, we, we keep it in mind when we're looking at mass media, newspaper reports, but it's more difficult for us to really keep that in mind when we're looking at, say, individual accounts or memoirs, um, right? Or what kind of things that, that ordinary people were talking about, writing about uh, when we look at wartime records. And so this, this idea of self-censorship, I think, is really important when we are looking at wartime documents. Thank you so much. Now let's get to the legal cases, right, which is okay. another kind of document that you brought us into, which is also really interesting. And this is really the centerpiece of Chapter 5. Chapter right. 5 looks very closely at um, Yasukuni, the issue, right, by examining mm-hmm. legal attempts to have the names of the dead removed from the Yasukuni register. Now, you bring us into several examples here, but the first and um, the one I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about is a 2010 lawsuit filed by Okinawans to remove mm-hmm. civilian deaths from the register. So briefly, right. Akiko, can you tell us a little bit about what um, is important and distinctive about this Okinawa case? Why is this so important as part of the story for you? I chose to focus on the Okinawa case um, partly because, you know, Okinawa is such an underrepresented um, area when it comes to war memory in Japan, unless it's the Battle of Okinawa itself. And so I wanted to highlight um, this particular region was one of the reasons. But um, I thought that it had a lot of implications, too, about um, what kind of memories are being preserved. Um, But first, I wanted to very briefly explain why there are civilian um, Okinawans enshrined at Yasukuni, which is that um, so the government immediately after occupation started to um, it uh, created this this act called War Injured and War Bereaved Families Relief Act, or Engoho in Japanese, um, which was this this um, money monetary support to the families of the warded or the families uh, or, or or those who had been injured at war. Um, and initially, it was only for the military, but the government at that point, and Okinawa is still occupied by the United States, but um, government looked at the Okinawa as a special case because um, of such devastation that happened on the island. It was hit the hardest, and people were really struggling um, to, 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 to live in the post-war period. And because of the land battles, so many people had died. So many civilians had died. And so they decided to expand this this relief act to say that in the case of Okinawa, civilians are eligible even as long as they can prove that they had helped provided some sort of support to the military um, and that that was the cause of their death or their injury. 
so what starts to happen is that people who want to apply for for this relief money, um, they have to um, write an application and talk about what happened. Um, so, for example, there will be a mother trying to get some money um, um, based on the death of her child's death. And then she would have to create this narrative um, and, and talk about, you know, and these are the ways in which my child died and therefore I am requesting relief money. And, and if that's approved, then the family gets some money. Um, and many have commented that without this, this financial support, they wouldn't have been able to, you know, put food on the table or roof about their heads. And so it had been a really important source of, 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 um, of, of living for the Okinawans. But what also happened in, in this process of many of the processes of application is that the, the, the civil servants who were um, receiving these applications um, as a way to help these families gave advice as to what kind of narratives to write for the application. And so there are these, these um, um, conversations um, being recorded at some places where the civil servants will be advising, well, you know, with that narrative, you're not going to get any relief money. So I'm advising you to revise it in these ways. Say that you were hiding in a cave and then say that you opened up um, the cave to allow the, the soldiers in and that's when your child died. And that way, um, the government, the, who, the, those who are assessing the applications, they will be convinced that your child had died for the sake of the nation and therefore you will receive um, your money, right? So then, then there's this alteration, or there's tampering with the memory narrative of what happened on, in, in, in Okinawa. So that's one way that memory has become, you know, sort of revised. But the other problem, um, another issue that had to do with memory and maintaining of memory was that not everyone who could have been eligible for this relief money um, applied because on principle they didn't want to mm-hmm. because you know they 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 thought you know, we don't want any money from the government because look what happened to us we were very angry at the government which means that that sort of divided the survivors into two those who sort of you know um decided that they they really need the money and so um created these acceptable narratives to get money from the government and then those who resisted, which means that it, and these two groups have a very difficult time reconciling with, with each other, which results in this, this sort of a lack of a collective Okinawa memory of their um, battle experiences. So these were kind of the really interesting issues that I thought um, came up with the Okinawan case. Great. Now, the chapter also looks at similar suits that were filed by Korean and Taiwanese families right. whose members were memorialized in the shrine um, kind of against their will, right? And right, right, right. Looking at these cases, we won't have time to talk about them in, 
any detail, but they do raise some major issues um, that are, I think, really good to think with and important to think with, including, does the Shrine's memorialization of war dead interfere with freedom of religion that was actually guaranteed in Article 20 of the Japanese Constitution? Right. um, The concept of mourning a public death. Do family members possess exclusive rights to mourn? And, um, you know, you take us into the entanglement of this as an emotional and a legal issue and the way that that really complicates things in taking us into the nature and consequences and implications of these suits, um, which is a really, really interesting chapter. Um, And I want to mark this um, especially for any listeners who are particularly interested in using legal cases and documents to shed light on um, historical phenomena and contemporary Mm -hmm, phenomena. mm And this was a really frustrating case for me to work on, too, because, you know, it, it's sort of like on the one hand, there are emotional issues and emotional issues can't be solved by legal means is, is what I came out with, came away with. Um, and, and the other thing is, you know, because when you're in a, in, in, in a, co- in a court of law, I guess you know, I'm, I'm not a legal scholar, but the Constitution is, is what guides everything. And you have to look at the constitutionality of everything, which means that what happens is, is that the judge ends up saying that Yasukuni Shrine, the rule is that Yasukuni Shrine is entitled to its freedom of religion as well. And for the Yasukuni Shrine to be practicing their freedom of religion um, by, you know, enshrining these war dead against the family's will, they're not really physically or any in any practical ways interfering with the family's freedom of religion. So that that's something that which is a legal um, ruling, but I, I just had a really hard time understanding and just wrapping my head around. So, so it was a very frustrating part to work on. Now, as we move further into the book and we sort of near our conclusion, we also near mm-hmm. the conclusion of the book. There's a chapter, um, chapter six, which is the last body chapter that looks at recent attempts by administrators and also supporters of the shrine to, in the words of the book, reintroduce their ideas of memorialization in ways that are relevant to what you call post-memory generations. Mm -hmm. And this raises some really interesting questions. What happens to the process of recovery when, in the words of the book, the trauma is not one's own, but is inherited? And how does one overcome a trauma that has no clear beginning or structure or ending? So can you, um, for us, kind of briefly take us into this notion of post-memory? Sort of how is this, um, how can this idea of refiguring the experience of memory of the Yasukuni Shrine help us understand trauma and its connection to this notion of post-memory generations that you're raising here? Right. So the post-memory generation um, is a generation that never experienced the trauma itself. And it was coined by a Holocaust scholar, Marion Hirsch. Um, and she was looking at um, children of Holocaust survivors who really grew up in an environment that's sort of very much framed by the parents' Holocaust experience. Um, and, and in some cases, the parents don't even talk about their experiences, but it's always there. And so 
it really affects, and, and in a way, I mean, it really affects the children um, because in a way, the children are being raised by traumatized parents. Um, and so they, they sort of inherit not necessarily inherit trauma because I'm not sure if one can inherit trauma, but they do inherit the parents' memories as almost their own because that it's such a big part of their upbringing. And when I was reading this, I sort of really um, started to think about my my childhood. And, you know, at the very beginning, I talked about, you know, how I was this kid who became very... Um, fascinated by war narratives and and then I started to think really about my childhood and 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 the presence of the war um in 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 my upbringing whether it's my parents or my grandparents and it's not that they're talking to me about their own experiences but it's always there and it's a part of my identity and and it seems to me that upon, you know, talking to a variety of people and looking at literature, many, many Japanese people, especially of my generation, um, grew up in that kind of a way, which means that they do inherit this sort of a sense that there was a tragic past um, in or there was some sort of a tragedy in their past, even though they have never experienced it. But in the case of Japan, another thing that they have inherited is is this this problem of war responsibility, um, a responsibility for something that happened before they were born. So on the one hand, they have this sense of 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 tragedy and loss somehow as a part of their own identity, but they're also forced on this this sense of responsibility and how to reconcile the two becomes a very difficult um, issue. And I think it still is today, you know, as Japan really grapples with this um, issue of war responsibility. Great. Now, the chapter also um, pays special attention to a particular museum, right? The Yushikai Mm -hmm. Museum and looks, um, and I mentioned this again for listeners who are interested in museum studies, right? Museums as a space for recreation. Um, So the chapter, in a way that we won't have a chance to talk about, but that's important, looks at this museum um, and its attempt to tell, quote, the true history of Japan and to sort of reframe or frame this memory in a particular way for younger generations. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also an epilogue here, um, and I'll just sort of mention this um, by way of conclusion and then maybe ask you to talk a little bit about it um, as we come to our close. The epilogue takes readers along with you on a guided tour through the shrine grounds. And this is a, actually an offline meeting of a particular mailing list. This is a mailing list called No More War, mailing list for maintaining memories of war experiences. Now, these tour guides that took... Um, um, you and then us as readers right on this tour had a particular mission that you bring us into. They're using the shrine grounds to discuss acts of violence and crime that were committed by the Japanese military and as, as a way of kind of understanding the Japanese people as victims of the wartime state. And you talk about this in terms of the reappropriation of the shrine um, and the kind of transformation of it into what you call a counter monument. Mm-hmm. So as a way of bringing us to our conclusion, Akiko, can you make maybe um, uh, very briefly take us into what was perhaps most notable for you about that tour and, and, you know, let us know what you'd like to leave us with um, as a way of um, bringing us into what you think is most important about the epilogue for you. Right. The fascinating thing about the tour is that 
it doesn't have to change anything physically within the shrine. It's using the existing space and the existing monuments to create a counter narrative to the narrative that's being presented um, at Yasukuni Shrine, especially in its museum. And I felt that, um, and, and so, you know, it's a very important undertaking too. And it's a really interesting way to, to think about and in a way, use Yasukuni Shrine, right? Because there have been, you know, many debates in the past decades in Japan about, so what to do with this Yasukuni problem, right? And one of the solutions was to create a new national memorial to kind of replace or, or take attention away from Yasukuni Shrine, almost like render it irrelevant um, as if it didn't exist anymore. And I feel like that's, that's a horrible, horrible solution because in a way that's sort of saying... Or, or um, arguing that Yasukuni Shrine is the bad thing, mm-hmm. um, rather than, I mean, it's the government saying Yasukuni Shrine is the bad thing, and we'll just get rid of it um, conceptually, um, rather than the government saying, okay, we will, you know, try to work with this, work on this issue of war responsibility, and try um, open up conversations with East Asian neighbors and, 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 and try to find a way to come to some sort of a mutual understanding um, about what happened in the past. Um, and, and of course, I, I, I think that it should involve, you know, apologies and, 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 and gestures of reparations and things like that. Um, but instead, the government was proposing, you know, let's not pay attention to that thing. And so that's sort of, you know, that's an argument that um, if something that represents a memory, right, Yasukuni Shrine for the people today, in a way represents Japan's bad wartime past. And in a way, that's sort of arguing that if we get rid of the object, the memorial that represents something, we can get rid of the memory as well. And I think that that's that is totally wrong and so these people who are really using the shrine grounds it's it's really highlighting its presence and i'm hoping that they will sort of start to think about why it's such a problem and one of the questions that i had in my book like why is it such a persistent problem today too and i I thought that it was very important to um, pay attention to the voices of people who are supporting the shrine, not just the critics of the shrine, in order to understand why it's such a complicated problem and understand that it's a war memorial as well as a political problem, things like that. And so I'm hoping that, you know, these tours would develop a little further and, 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 sort of start thinking about the problem of memory and space um, more than it does today. But but it is a really fascinating initiative. And I, you know, if anyone has a chance to take it, I would say go for it. <laughs> Great. So, Kiko, there's a million things that we didn't have a chance to talk about now that we're at the conclusion of our interview. I mean, there's lots of really interesting sources that you brought to bear um, in these chapters and in this study. There's lots going on that we didn't have a chance to get to, but that Mm -hmm. listeners, I'm sure, will find when they have a chance to get into the book themselves. But in the meantime, is there anything in particular that didn't come up, um, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? 
Well, I think we've covered quite a bit. Um, and, you know, the things that we didn't cover, you really summarized um, well. And But there was just one small, it's almost an anecdote. So I've been trying to publish this book in Japanese, in Japan. And um, I had talked to a couple of colleagues in Japan who in turn talked to some publishers that they knew. And the really interesting but discouraging answer that I received was that, well, for the most part, people weren't, the publishers weren't interested. But the reason was really fascinating, discouraging, which is that in Japan, the consensus seems to be that a book on Yasukuni Shrine that is lacking a political positioning is not needed. It's not welcomed. And right, so like that goes against the reason why I decided to work on this book, which is that we need to understand the history of the shrine and the kind of spatial um, practices that were going on in the shrine over time in order to really understand this Yasukuni issue. So that was kind of a yeah, discouraging, but an interesting experience that I had. Mm-hmm. So now that the book is out, at least in English, right? Um, and mm-hmm. what is what is next for you? What are you currently working on and inspired by? Well, so the project that I was kind of working on in between my dissertation and the book, um, representations of the war in um, museums, peace museums and war museums, I have published some book, uh, some articles on it, but I keep working on that as well. Um, and I'm also, so one, one key angle that was missing from my book was gender. And gender implications of Yasukuni history, um, and how sort of how wartime events and discussions around Yasukuni Shrine simultaneously drew upon and reinforced existing gender relationships of Imperial Japan, um, and so I'm. Am a part of this larger project um, by gender scholars um, on the theme of gender and grief, and so I'm sort of looking at grieving mothers and wives and in and around the Yasukuni Shrine, especially in the 1930s and 40s. Um, but my my main project is that I'm working on my second book and. Uh, current title, the tentative title is Mothers Against, so this is gender as well. So it's called Mothers Against War, Gender, Motherhood, and Grassroots Peace Activism in Post-War Japan. And I'm trying to analyze ways that Japanese women have both consciously and unconsciously gendered their participation in social activism um, in the immediate post-war decades. So basically looking at um, 1945 to 1970, Allied occupation, the Korean War, the nuclear threats, you know, the Lucky Dragon incident that happened in the 1950s, or the, uh, the Vietnam War and so on and so forth. Sort of, I'm especially interested in examining the relationship between the concept of motherhood and peace promotion. And there is this, you know, stereotypical um, understanding of mothers as promoters of peace because they are the gender that, that, that procreates um, and, 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 and creates new life. And, and I want to critically examine that. And it, I'm also interested in looking at the influence of U.S. United States Cold War structure in East Asia and the effects that that had on Japanese society because, you know, the time period that I'm talking about now, everything that's going on in Japan is really heavily influenced by the United States. So these are the kind of things I'm working on right now. Well, 
that all sounds great. So best of luck with that stuff. I'll let you get back to that work. And thanks for taking time away from that to talk with me about this book. Um, It's really been a pleasure and congratulations. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure for me as well. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very, very much for joining me at the podcast and I'll catch you next time.